So, bienvenue, aloha, and mellow greetings one and all. You are tuned in to Frivolous Gravitas. To our wonderful listeners worldwide on iTunes, Google Podcasts, and YouTube, and wherever else you may be found yourself dialed into this very special episode, it is with tremendous honor that I'm granted the privilege of introducing to you today's guest and star of the show. To, to discuss his most recent book, Just Reasonable Multiculturalism, we have Raphael Cohen Almago. We've been itching to cover the subject for quite a while now, but before we get to that, please allow me to introduce our guest expert joining us today from across the pond. He hails from his professorship at Hull University of Hull, where he is chair in politics and director of the Middle East Study Group. After earning his PhD at Oxford, Dr. Rafael Cohen Almago has made himself an astoundingly prolific participant to modern scholarship and social discourse as a world-renowned voice against oppression, abuse, coercion, and violence of many sorts. He has demonstrated a lifelong dedication to serve a greater social good with his breadth of expertise as a fervently outspoken advocate for truth and reconciliation, further demonstrated by his donated time to be with us here today. The doctor has written on heavily weighted subjects, which our listeners will find familiar to the channel, but more specifically, he's published academic papers on such as, on such as internet regulation and cyberbullying, uh, end of life rights and euthanasia, sociopolitical pieces analyzing and dissecting Israel-Palestine conflict. And more recently, he's released his newest book titled Just Reasonable Multiculturalism, published by Cambridge University Press. His list of merits could consume our entire broadcast, such as the painful reality of all mortal endeavors. I'll have to be unfair to the distinguished professor and neglect to mention all of his achievements and accolades in their entirety in this brief introduction. I strongly urge our listeners to check the notes in the description for links to more of his work. As our followers have come to appreciate, we don't advertise, promote, or sell anything on this channel. We're comfortable making small exceptions as we did with privacy tools, open source software, and classical literature, etc. We're not being paid to support or endorse anything mentioned on this channel. We just feel it's important for us to use our platform responsibly. This channel aims to promote social discourse and communication in order for us to lessen the needless suffering in the world as much as possible. We promote thoughtful ideas, not necessarily just the ideas we subscribe to personally, but all ideas from solid grounds. And we encourage our listeners to live the best, most fulfilling lives they can through education, awareness, and compassionate understanding. So, with the exhaustive adieus aside, I'd like to thank Professor Cohen Almagor once again for taking part in our discussions today. Uh, Raphael, I'd like you to start us off by discussing um, or describing your most recent book a little bit. Uh, then maybe we can segue into a summary of Israel-Palestine conflict for the remainder of our time. Uh, the book in question is Just, Comma, Reasonable Multiculturalism, subtitle Liberalism, Culture, and Coercion. I haven't read it yet, full disclosure, and I don't want to suppose too much from the cover, so perhaps I can ask you what it's about, who it's for, and why it's important, or in other words, what your motivation or, or inspiration was for writing it and what you hope it achieves or impresses upon its readers. Thank you very much for the invitation and for the kind introduction. Um, I'll start with the motivation for, for the book. So the story of this book actually started in... Uh, in 1991. In 1991, I finished my studies at Oxford and uh, I went back home to, to Israel. 
And the guy that opened his arms to me, returning to the to the country after four years uh, away, uh, was Professor Yudal Kana, who was at that time the president of a research institute in Jerusalem called the Van Leer Jerusalem Institute. And Yudal um, called me and invited me to be a fellow visitor, advisor, whatever uh, title that I want. Uh, put me in office next to him and said, uh, I want you to explore Van Leer, see what you are doing, what, what, what we are doing here, and uh, have a six months and then decide uh, what you want to do next. And because there are all kinds of study groups and so on that, that we do, focusing on different subjects and um, you know, just enjoy, look around and tell me what you think. So for six months, I was just... Uh, um, you know, looking at all the projects, dozens of projects that Valley had. And at the end of uh, some months, I think four or five months, I went to Yuda. I mean, we've been in touch all the time, but I, t- I told him I, I made up my mind, thinking of all the projects that you are doing, I am uh, find it fascinating to join your um, European project. Now, what was the European project? The European project w- was very exceptional, even for Valley standards. Uh, first of all, because of the composition of the group. It's composed of, I think, six or seven Israeli Jews, um, five Israeli Palestinians, and two Germans who happened to be in the country at that time. Now, people should be aware that uh, Israeli Jews and Israeli Palestinians hardly ever meet as equals in Israel. There are not uh, meeting points for them. But this was one of the exceptional places when you have um, a, a neutral meeting point of, of intellectuals who can come together and sit together and converse and, and know each other. And we, uh, thanks to a very generous uh, funding from Volkswagen Foundation in Germany, we worked for three years. Uh, we used to meet every, fri- every third Friday of the month uh, and discuss um, methods pertaining to culture. Now, the idea behind the European project was to examine to what extent Europe influences the Middle East and to what extent Middle East is influences Israel. That was the first time that I came to think seriously about the issue of culture. Because until then I was of course interested um, in culture like most of us, but never as an academic matter. And uh, in 1991, 1992, when we actually started working, uh, it became uh, sort of an academic uh, preoccupation. and. Um, Chris, you said that I'm doing many things. So uh, I came in and out of the issue of culture throughout my life, but never uh, as the prime preoccupation. It was always a side issue after the three years of a layer. It was always a side issue because I was more interested in other topics. I was writing other books and other articles and so on. But I published about a dozen of articles um, since 1991 pertaining to the culture, and for me, it's not a lot. Uh, so it was not a major issue. I became more and more engrossed with the issue of culture uh, because of certain events that took place in the past 10 years. Um, in the past 10 years, there were some astonishing remarks made by leaders of the free world. Um, David Cameron, um, Nicolas Sarkozy, uh, Angela Merkel, they all say that uh, multiculturalism is passé. And uh, not only is passé, but uh, and it's not important, 
but actually it's damaging uh, liberal democracy. And um, David Cameron even said that it supports terrorism. Multiculturalism supports terrorism. And, and someone who knows something about this, these issues, I was just flabbergasted. How come it is coming up with these unfathomable accusations against multiculturalism? What on earth is going on here? Because multiculturalism was in vogue, I would say, during the 1980s, 1990s, but certainly the, the situation has changed in the past 10 years. So, so what happened? So I decided that this was about 10, 12 years ago. I decided that my next big project is going to be about multiculturalism. And what I wanted to do, I wanted to tackle three questions, three uh, attacks on multiculturalism. The first attack is that multiculturalism is against democracy. Why is that? Because multiculturalism um, elevates group rights, so the critique argue, uh, well beyond individual rights. And because liberal democracy is all about the individual, everything stems from the individual, everything should go back to the individual, and the state is just a machinery to help individualism, if you are trumping individual rights by group rights, you say the group rights are more important, then of course you're against liberal democracy. But that was the first uh, claim that I wanted to investigate, whether this argument against multicultural this critique holds any water. The second critique, second attack on multiculturalism was, or is, still is, that uh, multiculturalism, multiculturalism is bad uh, for women. But it's not only bad um, for liberal democracy, it's also bad for women. And why is that? Because when you look at certain cultures across the, the, the world, you'll find that oftentimes certain cultures are holding uh, group rights to discriminate against women. And uh, in all the occasions when such things happen, when you find discrimination, you find cultural and religious claims of group rights. But that's the second attack on multiculturalism that it's, it's bad for women. And the third attack is the one that, the most recent one that I mentioned is that it promotes and helps terrorism to flourish, which is the most uh, atrocious attack there is. So I wanted to investigate these three claims, three, three attacks against multiculturalism. So they, sorry, and I wanted, but they haven't, they hadn't made the economic argu arguments or anything like that. No, I think this, these are, there might be, but I didn't explore them. Uh, uh, but uh, I think these are the main claims against multiculturalism. Yeah, I'm just not sure if that's a more recent phenomenon or if that was always prevalent in their old discussions too. So sorry for interrupting. I was. No, it's okay. Um. So. The purpose of the book was to examine to what extent multiculturalism and liberalism are reconcilable, um, whether the two can, can go hand in hand, or if you give a voice to multiculturalism, then ipso facto, this is going to undermine liberalism. That's the major question that I wanted to tackle. And... Um, this, to this question, I devote the 12 years of my life uh, to, to examine to what extent this is possible. And, uh, and I decided to do that in a way that is going to tackle also these three questions, three attacks against multiculturalism by the following way. First of all, uh, I developed a theory on just reasonable multiculturalism. 
Um, and that's the first part of the book. That's the first four chapters. So in the first chapters, I discuss the issues of justice and uh, what is justice. Of course, you know, you put 10 people in the room and you ask them what is justice, you're going to receive at least 12 answers because some people are not decided. So the issue of justice is, of course, is very, very contested. I'm a follower of, of John Rawls, so I took elements of his theory, um, a theory of justice published in 1971, and I follow John Rawls, I'm a Rawlsian, I follow John Rawls in, in that respect, and I adopt his concept of justice. The second thing that I want to clarify, what do I mean by liberal democracy? So what is liberalism, what's democracy, and so on. So that's the first chapter, deals with the aspect of, of justice and liberal democracy. The second chapter deals with the issues of multiculturalism. So I explain what multi multiculturalism is all about. And also with the notion of reason reasonableness, because it's, it's very important to me that, that this theory will be not only just, but it will be also reasonable. Reasonable not only to liberal demo Democrats. I mean, that's easy. Uh, of course, my, well, it's not of course, but my, my point of view is liberal. So, but I, I don't want to entertain only liberals. I, I want to uh, cross the Rubicon and I want to be able to communicate with people who are not liberal. So I want to convince them that what I'm suggesting to them is reasonable, uh, not only just, but also reasonable. So I, I'm, I uh, devise a, a concept of reasonableness and explain what is reasonable multiculturalism. So that's the second chapter. That's the second layer of the theory that I developed. The third level layer of the theory that I developed has to do with the concept of compromise. Um, I abhor violence. I think that the only thing, the only thing that violence breeds is violence, and, and that's not a good thing. Uh, I'm a peace man, person. I've been a person of peace all my life, and I continue to be a peace person. So I, I'm very much endorsing the ideas of compromise. Um, or finding the middle ground, or finding a way to accommodate different interests. The South can be in conflict, but there is a way, I believe. And I believe in, in, in bridges, not in walls. So where there are some obstacles, what we need is to erect bridges. So compromise is very important. And also, I'm a follower of Jürgen Habermas and his theory of, of deliberative democracy. So everything can be discussed, everything can put on table, everything can put on the air and through the clashes of ideas, we are going to deliberate and we'll find a common denominator and we move forward. So the, the third chapter, the third layer of the theory has to do with compromise and deliberate democracy. And the last layer of, of, um, of the theory that seems contradictory at first to the third layer is the layer of coercion. Hence why the word coercion appears in the subtitle. You see, if I'm dealing with issues that are very, very conflicted, that are happening within liberal democracy, because my view is limited only to liberal democracies or to democracies, but not, it's not about authoritarian regimes. It's, it's within the framework that people can converse. Um, and I say that the state sometimes has the right to intervene, uh, the right to um, pursue reasonable justice within multiculturalism, then this means that I would ask the state to employ its force, its coercion over illiberal groups. 
And this, of course, is very tricky thing to do to ask the state to intervene um, against illiberalism within the state. So um, we need to employ some form of coercion to stop injustice from taking place. Now, of course, we always live with coercion. I mean, I don't know many people who enjoy paying taxes, but we do pay taxes. Um, we do a Jewish duty, and uh, in many countries, you have to serve in the army. And we don't like it, but we do serve in the army. Um, so coercion is part of, of where we live. It's part of the state, the apparatus of the state that we have to reckon with. And depending whether it is uh, reasonable and whether the claims behind it are just, then maybe there is also a case for coercion. So that's the issue of the fourth layer, the fourth chapter of the theory. And after I developed the theory, then I start the application of the theory. And the, the next three parts of the book have to do with the application of the theory. So the second part of the book, the first part of the application, has to do with physical harm, which is, you know, relatively easy. If I swing my hand uh, and punching your nose, you're going to bleed. It's very easy to prove that you're bleeding and that's the result of my punching you in the nose. So um, two chapters have to do with cases or physical harm. So I'm, I'm taking on both issues like scarring um, and I also examine female circumcision and I examine female genital mutilation and I, find, and I examine a murder for family honor. So these are the four issues that I examine there in the physical harm. Um, and uh, yes, go ahead. May I ask on that, um, does that cover also male genital mutilation as well? Like circumcision or? That's the next chapter. So, oh, <laughs> So, uh, because, question. yeah, I'm sorry, the physical harm, does that apply to uh, property or like extended physical harm as in like to a family member or to a job or something like that? No, physical harm has to do with physical harm. So it's just, body. it's just to affected by the person kind of thing. Body, the body of the person. Okay. So, um, I, I make a distinction between female circumcision and female genital mutilation because if for instance, there will be a cultural right in a tribe. And then these people of the tribe go into liberal democracy and they continue to have um, this ritual, which is a tiny or small scar on the outer labia. Uh, then it's not much worse than male circumcision. Some even may claim it's, uh, it's less than male circumcision. So uh, I would not object to that. But I certainly object to any form of female genital mutilation, which uh, just distorts the, the physics of a woman and uh, deprive women from their sexuality and harm them for lifelong. It's a lifelong torture. To this, I absolutely object. So that's the, that's the, the first chapter of the application, chapter five. In chapter six, I'm looking at male, male circumcision. I can tell you that when I started uh, um, my research in male circumcision, I had no idea how complicated this issue is. It's one of was one one of the most complicated issues that I tackled in the book, and I spent months just trying to find a way, you know, just and reasonable way forward to accommodate male circumcision. Um, so I, I put forward a proposal for humane male circumcision. Um, I presume that not many Orthodox people are going to like my proposal, but 
there you have it. Uh, that's my proposal. The thing that is reconcile would reconcile between uh, multiculturalism and liberalism. And then the next two chapters are about non-physical harm. So non-physical harm has to do with deprivation of education and has to do with deprivation of property rights. Uh, there are some tribes in the liberal um, world that if a woman married is married outside of the tribe, she doesn't have any say about the property of whatever she accumulated throughout her life. And of course, this is discriminatory and unjust. I'm very much opposed to that. And I'm also very much opposed to deny education to, to women uh, because of some belief that they should stay at home and uh, um, they should take care of the family and they should not go out of the house and progress themselves. I think this is wrong. I think this is evil to women. And uh, I think that the state should not allow this to happen. And then the following chapter has to do with denying education to children. Um, and this happens, for instance, in the Amish community in, in North America, including in your country, in Canada. So I'm very much opposed to that. Um, and I explain why the state should not allow the Amish to continue discriminating against children, their own children. And then the last part of the book has to do with country case studies. Uh, remember, there's this small issue of saying that uh, multiculturalism promotes terrorism. So yeah. I took two countries in which uh, claims of terrorism serve to deny multiculturalism. And these two countries are France and Israel. So I have a chapter about France and all the burqa and niqab ban in, in France. And I just I show how just ridiculous it is. Um, and uh, the last chapter of the book has to do with discrimination against Israeli Palestinians in Israel, uh, because in the name of religion in Israel and nationality, because there's no difference between nationality and religion in Israel, um, people have been discriminated against. And of course, as a human rights activist, I'm very much opposed to that. And I'm for egalitarian uh, distribution of, of, of wealth, of justice, of all the liberties and rights within the state. That's the book. That sounds like a phenomenally deep and um, introspective read, because even for writing that for yourself, you would have had to deal with all the philosophizing of figuring out what reasonable is, what justice is, what multiculturalism is. So it sounds like a really in-depth examination, even personally, of what you see in the world. Would that be accurate, do you say? Absolutely. As I said, I, I mean struggling over issues that I had no idea that I'm going to tackle when I started this, this journey. It's a very long journey. As I said, it took me 12 years. Mm -hmm. But uh, um, I, I did not imagine when I started, say, the writing of Mel Circumcision to, to see just how complicated the issue is. And I, I could not imagine uh, what I discovered when I studied Amish. You know, there's some, sometimes you, you research one thing and then uh, you find another matter that is connected to the first thing that you want, that you have in mind. Mm -hmm. And then you're struggling uh, to find an answer for yourself, first of all. Should I continue to engage with this side issue that I just found? Or is or, it a tangent? <laughs> or just let it go, because it's not really what I wanted to, to study. Uh, with the case of the Amish, it, it, it was so alarming and it was so it was clouding everything that I had to deviate from my original plan and study this thing to see whether it's whole water and how it influences what I want to say. So I was 
there was no way for me. So, but I had no idea, you know, when you, when you are starting your research, you know, when you start, you have no idea how you're going to end it. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. Yeah, because even things like education, it's hard to say what constitutes education based on different people's perspectives of it, right? Like you could talk to one theocratic nation and education would mean the doctrine that they're teaching, which is um, subjugating women and children, for example, mm. or enabling such perverse actions as female genital mutilation. So I, I can imagine that even simple words that we take for granted when we're speaking, because we agree on so many of these preconceptions, how difficult it would be to write um, uh, as seriously as you did about the same subject, because you almost have to define everything as you're going along and then realizing what you've been taking for granted all this time as you, as you write. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it's, it, it is a journey. I made my life a bit easier by deciding not to be universalist. I'm not a universalist. So unlike most liberals, I don't claim that uh, the values that I uphold are universal. They're universal in principle, but not in practice. I can speak uh, endlessly about uh, women's rights, but it's not going to be very effective in places like Iran. So I, I constrict myself only to democracies. So that makes the problem that you mentioned um, obsolete, simply because I'm, I'm not going to encounter that. I'm going to encounter the problem that you mentioned only when it is up upheld by groups within, within democracy who are pulling this. And then we have this balancing act to do uh, what should trump each other, the, the group rights or the individual rights, the rights of the state and the authority of the state or the rights of the, of the cultural group. And that's a very fine balance that you, yeah, you need to find a just, reasonable compromise. But it's almost difficult even with democracies because you have countries like the United States, which are still grappling with those same two concepts of church and state when they're dealing with abortion rights or women's access to contraception or, you know, any number of things. Like even Britney Spears, to put it more um, colloquially for the people uh, who may not be as interested armchair poly scientists, like even pop stars are dealing with issues of being abused by men of power in a democracy because they're exploiting rules and loopholes. And so it, it's almost difficult, um, even with that pigeonholing, to still, I think you're under understating the amount of depth that you needed to, uh, to cover in your own book. <laughs> but just from an outsider's perspective, and again, I haven't, I haven't read it, obviously, I'm looking forward to it. But okay. I, I think it, I'm looking forward to it greatly, actually, because it's one of my subjects uh, of fascination how people interact in integrated complex systems and how they evolve, the dynamism of it is just infinitely intricate. And it just, it really blows my mind that somebody can tackle and wrap it into a book that's coherent and, uh, and has an ending, <laughs> like a start and an end point, because it seems like something that's just sort of got no beginning and no end. Um, yeah. So that's uh, fantastic. Thank you very much for, for going through in such detail. Um, I just wanted to ask you a couple questions on the multicultural, multiculturalism um, headlines sort of that you, you had mentioned. You had said um, multiculturalism against democracy and liberalism, um, how it's bad for women and how it uh, promotes terrorism as the three arguments against it. Um, just putting it personally, those probably wouldn't have been the first three that I would have thought of. Uh, how did how did you arrive at those? Did you just scour headlines and look for what's out in popular culture? 
or from the books that were being published or from conversations you had had? Or how, how did you arrive at those three? So the, these claims were made, I think, around um, 2008, 9, 10, 11. I think these were the years. I have to, it's in my book, but around that period of time, mm-hmm. uh, David Cameron was making these uh, this claims. And I found it so astonishing that the Prime Minister speaks like this. Uh, that, that I said, I, I need to look at that, into that. I, I need to understand where does it stem from? Why does it speak like this? I mean, it's one thing that you and I say such a thing, but when, they, when the Prime Minister of Britain is saying such a thing, it's all the added issues of um, immigration, and then, you know, a year later is, is pursuing Brexit that was, you know, in the air for some time. Uh, and then he says this, there, there is a great influence on these things. There are repercussions. It's, a, it's not just mere words. These are horrific accusations against Masiba. That's, that's intention to bury multiculturalism. Mm-hmm. So this was actually what prompted me to start the, the, the book. That was the issue. Uh, because that I was, was the so, noise in politics, sort of, that you were, you were hearing, eh? The, the populism of that, um, the cavalier way to make this really um, serious accusation. Um, and I think, I mean, he's an intelligent man, so he knows what will be the repercussions of that. I thought it was irresponsible, so I decided to look into that. And then the other, the other thought, listen, I, I told you that I've been working in the field of multiculturalism since 1993, so this is, issue is not new to me. Mm-hmm. I know what is in the literature. I know what are the, the issues. Uh, but none of them, you know, the accusation that it's, uh, it's bad for democracy and it's bad for women, these are not new. It's been around for 20, 30 years. Um, this extra layer of argumentation that it supports terrorism in some way, that was something that aggravates the entire uh, discourse and make it very poisonous as well. And it's useless. Like it, it offers no suggestions, no solutions, um, no corrections, no evidence. Like it doesn't do anything to add to the discourse whatsoever. It's basically a blanket statement that people just accept as true because they feel it. Well, it just creates uh, more divisions mm-hmm. and uh, and a put a bad name to certain religions, uh, unjustifiably so, and uh, you just create more. More hostilities and, and, and more bad blood. That's what you're doing because it's not going to be accepted by um, by people who want to to have peace, notwithstanding what religion there is, and and certainly it's not going to be accepted by people who are against immigration, and and then you'll find um, innocent victims. I, I noticed in countries like where I'm from, in Canada and Australia, and even some some extent down in South America, um, a lot of the the responses publicly or the uh, against immigration has been things like uh, economic reasons, like uh, they cost us our tax money. Um, we don't want them taking over our our neighborhood that we grew up in. It's a lot of really personal uh, fears that aren't justified or base or are baseless and those are being exploited by politicians rather than making statements of grandeur like terrorism they're going to blow you up and kill you it's they're going to take over your neighborhood and cost you tax money or eat up all your food resources so food's going to be more expensive or whatever insane ideas they come up with without writing down a formula or um you know addressing an economist 
Yeah. Uh, do you think it's different in different parts of the world? Like their top three reasons against this type of uh, immigration or uh, integration, I should say, of different cultures? No, I think you're right. I think these are quite uh, common sort of accusation against uh, against immigration um, in all countries that are immigration countries: Canada, United States, Australia, uh, Great Britain. You, you'll find the same kind of populist. Um, accusations against immigration uh, that are very easy to sell by those who are of you know certain lineage or who just want to to ride over this uh, populist movement and, and uh, harvest uh, any political gain that, that they can have and um, of course it's utterly ridiculous um, and it's 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 simply not true I, I can tell you about about UK for instance that um, the place that is most uh, cosmopolitan, with vast immigration, many people from all over the world. This is London. And London has been flourishing thanks to this um, immigration and, and people who came to work in Britain and so on. And uh, the list of the voters who voted uh, Brexit are in London. Mm-hmm. Whereas places where you don't find many immigration, many immigrants, they don't are far less cosmopolitan than London, they voted Brexit. And when you ask them, why did you vote uh, Brexit? They said, I didn't want the Pakistani and the Bangladeshi here. Brexit, Europe. Mm-hmm. Have you looked at the map recently? <laughs> I mean, so it's, it is nothing to do with logic. Um, and the, it's it's nonsensical, and you know the entire Brexit thing is just breaks my heart because uh, people were bought into um, populist, unfounded, unreasonable arguments without looking into them, and um, and now we have it. So mm-hmm. you're absolutely right. Economic uh, uh, discussions and economic reasoning drive a lot of hostilities against immigrants in many many. Uh, countries of immigration. But the cruel irony is the economics are favorable to immigration. That's what I find so funny. I, I mean, it's funny, but not funny. But the things that they focus on ep- economically, because um, immigration is more stimulative than just printing money. <laughs> and people are more in favor of debt than actual productivity. And it, it just baffles me that that's the, uh, what do you call that? The thing they hold on to when they're going to make a Brexit vote is they just don't want these these people in this region for economic reasons. But, yeah, um, don't, don't, don't argue uh, and don't mess around with me with facts. I'm not in this <laughs> Facts are not in this uh, Economists don't deal in facts anyway, so I'm all right. <laughs> let me try it. Let me practice a bit. Rafael Cohen Almagor? Yeah. Close enough? Absolutely. Rafael Cohen Almagor. It's actually easier than... You, you try to make it Spanish, but I'm not Spanish. Oh, Rafael I'm Cohen Almagor. Kohen, it's 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 an it's Israeli name. Kohen means that my forefathers used to serve in the temple. Mm. Uh, so Kohen, as you know, is the most uh, prevalent name in Judaism. That means whenever you you meet a Kohen, that means that uh, his or her forefathers used to work in the holy temple. I didn't know and, that. And Al Magor uh, means no fear in Hebrew. Al is no Magor is fear, so is is no fear. Oh, I'm jealous of your name. <laughs> so, Rafael Cohen, Cohen Almagor. Cohen Almagor. Yeah, Cohen Almagor. 
Did you have any final comments that you wanted to make about the book, or uh, go and read it? Um, <laughs> it uh, you know, I invested a lot of work in it, so you know, enjoy and make most of it. And if you have anything to say and uh, criticize or to uh, take from this, uh, you know, hope positively, and uh, then hopefully implement this also in 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 your way of life, you people, you governments, you societies. Uh, that's why I, I'm writing these books. I'm, I'm writing these books in order to have uh, influence on, on people to think about these issues and for politicians to think about what they're saying and uh, and make an impact. Uh, all my activities are very, very practical. I'm trying to write about practical things that actually matter, uh, that um, make a difference and uh, create, I believe, a, a better world. I think your books do just that, and your writing, and the way you speak very eloquently on the subject as well. It helps the discourse along, if nothing else, but obviously the ideas are vastly more important than just the discussion that it promotes. Thank you. But I think just having the conversation and having the publications out there, it encourages not just people who read it, but other authors to write things that other people will read. So Absolutely. I think it's very, very important, and I applaud your, your work and very much appreciate your contributions. Thank you. Okay, so we'll be back in just a bit with a segment uh, where we continue our discussions on Israel-Palestine conflict. <laughs>